Hello, I'm David Lee, and this is the Sustainable Scotland podcast, brought to you by The Scotsman, Scotland's national newspaper since 1817, and now bringing fresh and relevant content to 21st century audiences. Sustainable Scotland looks at how Scotland is doing in its efforts to be cleaner and greener, and whether this generation really is leaving the world in a better state for the next. This episode is brought to you in partnership with legal firm Womblebond Dickinson and asks a simple but very complex question. Can Scotland hit its net zero targets by 2045? It can do it, uh, it must do it, but experience to date has been that we're falling short of our targets. That's Richard Coburn, partner and UK head of energy at Womblebond Dickinson. Before we get stuck into the topic, a couple of things to remember. First, net zero does not mean no greenhouse gas emissions at all. It means a balance between the amount of greenhouse gas produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere. We reach net zero when the amount we add is no more than the amount taken away. Second, Scotland has set itself a tough, tough target to achieve this. The rest of the UK and large parts of the rest of the world thought 2050 was a realistic target to meet net zero. Scotland set its target at 2045, five years less to achieve a hell of a lot. And as Richard Coburn explains, the recent expert commentary suggests Scotland is off the pace. It's best to look at what some of the experts have been saying recently. Uh, Fraser of Allen, their institute, and also the Climate Change Committee issued reports just prior to Christmas 2021 when they said, look, we love these ambitious targets, they're great, but uh, we need to convert some of the consultations into implementation because otherwise we're going to fall short of these targets. The, the, the Climate Change Committee in particular uh, effectively said, look, you know, we set a number of recommended targets for 2021. We set around about 30 in order to reach the requisite uh, reduction in emissions. And it concluded the Scottish Government had reached about nine of those. Now, that's quite a good measure of how far we've fallen short. So good to have the targets, uh, but we do need more action to actually achieve them. One figure often talked about as a sign of how we're doing is generating the equivalent of 100% of Scotland's electricity needs using renewable power. We're getting very close, 98.6% in 2021, up from 97.4% in 2020. But why is 100% so stubbornly elusive? Can we get over the line in 2022 with existing offshore wind and onshore wind and other renewable projects that we have? The short answer is yes. It's, it's worthwhile looking backwards first though. So 2011, uh, that figure you mentioned was 37%. Uh, and in 2019, it was just below 90%. So to be at 98.6% is actually pretty good and we will see a lot of projects coming to fruition during 2022, uh, particularly on onshore winds, uh, which I think will push us right through the 100% target. So uh, onshore wind currently represents about 71% of Scotland's renewable energy capacity. That's about 12 gigawatts. Uh, we currently have another 5 gigawatts under construction and another 5 gigawatts in planning. So assuming all of that comes through, or at least a decent portion of that, then yes, we should hit 100%. But I would also caution when we're talking about this issue 
not just look at Scotland in isolation because the reality is that there's a lot of export and import of energy that goes on. When we talk about renewables, the criticism often levelled is about intermittency. What do we do when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine? And how important is improved energy storage technology to capture that renewable energy when it's created, store it, then use it when it's needed? So one of the issues with the low carbon regime is that if the sun doesn't shine, then we get less solar energy. If the wind doesn't blow, we get less wind energy. And therefore, there are times where we'll get a lot of energy when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, and other times when we won't because of the weather. And what we need to be able to do is store that energy at the times when it is flowing so that we can keep it in reserve so that when the weather is adverse, then we can click on the battery and we can suck the energy out of the batteries. So in simple terms, that's what we need battery storage for. How well are we doing at making this a reality? Richard Coburn says batteries can now store energy for two to four hours, but need to do so for much longer to make energy storage viable. Fortunately, there are more and more people out there trying to figure it out. Around the world, investment in batteries is increasing really rapidly. So in 2020, uh, around a billion dollars uh, was spent in battery storage companies by investor companies. Uh, last year, a report came out saying that that figure has increased to 5.5 billion US dollars. So yes, there is an, uh, an issue there at the moment with uh, battery storage, but I would say in the next five to six years, we should hopefully be cracking that technology. So progress is being made in generating renewable energy and storing it, but Scotland is still playing catch up with its net zero targets. So the next obvious question is, how can we increase the pace? How can we get momentum behind the push to reach those net zero targets? What can really make a difference? Offshore wind is often said to be the real game changer and following a significant announcement in January of plans to create a large amount of new offshore wind farms off the Scottish coast, it generally looks like it could be the real deal. John Alday, Strategic Business Development Manager at Port of Cromarty Firth, puts it like this. So offshore wind is, if you like, our country's renewable superpower. A quarter of all the wind power in Europe is in Scottish waters. And these are strong winds too. However, it's taken a long time for offshore wind power to develop at scale. But the Scott Wind announcement in January takes us to another level. Scotland currently has two gigawatts of power of offshore wind. If you can't imagine a gigawatt, think light bulbs. A gigawatt is a thousand million watts. And the target is to increase from two gigawatts to 11 gigawatts by 2030. However, the ambition goes much further with a whopping 25 gigawatts of new potential offshore wind projects announced in January in the Scott Wind Round by Crown Estate Scotland. That effectively gives permission to developers to build wind farms on or above particular areas of the seabed. Even the most intense wind watchers were taken aback. Joanne Alday again. The 25 gigawatt was an incredible statement of intent, I think, by the Scottish Government and Crown Estate Scotland to really put Scotland on the offshore wind map. It's the first leasing round we've seen in over a decade in Scotland and for them to award 25 gigawatts as opposed to the 8 to 10 that was forecast. As I say, significant statement of intent of where the country wants to be in terms of offshore wind. We're hopeful that that can now be delivered. And of course, that's the hard work now begins after the awards have been made. 
There's a big economic opportunity here as well as an environmental one, as Richard Coburn explains. It's really important in terms of meeting targets, but it's also important in the sense that the projects are spread all around the north, east and indeed west coast of Scotland. So the opportunity, the economic opportunity is spread around the country and, and therefore it's a good example of how Scotland can capitalise on, on offshore wind. Joanne Alday agrees and says the biggest opportunity is to develop Scotland as a world leader in floating offshore wind. They're predicting about a billion pounds of investment in the Scottish supply chain per gigawatt. So we're looking at potentially 25 billion um, invested if all of the sites are built out. So we've got a great opportunity now to learn the lessons from fixed bottom wind and create a supply chain with higher amount of Scottish and UK content, particularly in floating wind. And 10 of the 17 sites awarded are in floating wind. With floating wind, we are in Scotland having to move into deeper waters for offshore wind, which means that you cannot use the fixed bottom wind platforms and, and the jacket foundations. So it means that we're going to be at the forefront of that technology. Scotland should be one of the first places in the world to be building out floating offshore winds at scale, um, at commercial scale. And we've seen that already with projects like Highwind Tampen and the Kincardine Offshore Wind Farm off Aberdeen. You're listening to Sustainable Scotland, a podcast produced by The Scotsman. This episode is brought to you in partnership with legal firm Wobblebond Dickinson and is examining if Scotland can meet its ambitious target of being net zero by 2045. How is Scotland doing in its efforts to be cleaner and greener? And will this generation really leave the world in a better state for the next generation? We've talked about one of the key actions that needs to be taken if Scotland's going to make it to net zero, lots more offshore wind. But what about another big ticket item, carbon capture and storage or CCS, effectively collecting carbon emissions from big industrial sites and pumping them under the sea. How crucial is that? Ronnie Quinn is Chief Executive of Nexus, an alliance of organisations committed to reducing emissions from heavy industry in Scotland. I would argue that carbon capture and storage is essential if we're going to meet these uh, 2045 targets for Scotland and 2050 targets for the UK. We need carbon capture and storage to decarbonise our industry and to make that work for us, to keep the economy going, keep jobs in place and to contribute by taking that CO2 out of the atmosphere at source. The uh, direct contribution it can make initially is um, taking out about 5 million tonnes of CO2 uh, and storing it under the sea, in the North Sea. And that can grow uh, within a decade to about 9 million tonnes. And there is the capability by using uh, the deep water ports that we have in Scotland that we're blessed with to import CO2 from the rest of the UK and from elsewhere, in fact. And and the more CO2 we inject, the cheaper that process becomes. Um, So that's a good news story. Economically, yes, there will be opportunities here. There will be uh, what people are calling first mover advantage to build up that supply chain within Scotland and within the UK and optimise the benefits uh, in that way. Additionally, 
uh, and this isn't to be uh, minimised in any way, we've got an opportunity here to make that just uh, transition and to preserve and protect the heavy industry in Scotland, the petrochemical industry in Scotland, the big emitters, we're going to preserve the jobs in those industries and allow them to continue to contribute to the Scottish economy. So we're talking here about large petrochemical plants like Ineos and Moss Moran, cement producers, steel producers and more. And Ronnie says it's not about if, but when we do this. We have industrial emitters in Scotland producing about 11.3 million tonnes per annum. And we have the capability with our geology, with our people and with our oil and gas heritage, which we should treat uh, as an asset. I think Scotland has been showing the way here. There is now uh, a strong political uh, will, uh, particularly in Holyrood, but we're also seeing that now in Westminster to take carbon capture and storage forward. The government has committed to uh, doing this and this is now happening. It's not a question of if this will happen, it's now just a question of how soon this happens. Richard Coburn agrees and says the long-term benefits could be enormous. The Scottish Cluster is very important economically and environmentally. So environmentally, uh, the Scottish Cluster reckons it can be capturing 500 million tonnes of carbon dioxide by 2050. Uh, it can be responsible for 15,000 jobs each year to 2050 and it could add about £1.4 billion annually to the Scottish economy. This is the long term, but Carbon Capture and Storage, or CCS in Scotland, suffered short-term disappointment at the end of 2021, when it missed out on track one of UK government funding for CCS projects. Two projects in Northern England were selected instead, a move criticised by some as highly political. However, Ronnie Quinn is certain that CCS in Scotland will soon be back on track. It's a degree that the track one decision was disappointing. Um, arguably, we're not off track and uh, we are still a reserve bidder for track one, but we are looking strongly towards the track two competition, um, which should be forthcoming later on this year and for which the Scottish Cluster is well-placed. So the consortium members are as energised as possible. They are looking forward to doing this. CCS has the capability to be building uh, within the next five years and injecting within the next five to, five to seven years. That's how soon we can be moving to that CCS economy. And additionally, CCS uh, will produce the blue hydrogen and that will kickstart that hydrogen economy for Scotland. Ronnie has taken us into the complex but exciting world of hydrogen, already being used to power buses in places like Aberdeen, but with far greater potential, not only in transport but much more, as Joanne Alday explains. Hydrogen is interesting for a number of reasons. And if we look at it from an offshore wind developer's point of view, initially, we have major grid constraint issues, particularly in the north of the country. So we have more people putting energy into the grid than taking energy out, which causes constraints, but also it means it's much more expensive 
for energy developers to put into the grid in this part of the country. So it's more expensive to develop a wind farm in the north of Scotland than, say, off the southeast coast of England, where they may be paid to put energy into the grid because that's where lots of people actually need the energy. Up here, we have to move that energy to where the people are that actually use that electricity, for example. So what hydrogen can do is resolve some of those grid constraint issues and give the developers an alternative use for that electricity and they can produce hydrogen. Now, that's only one part of the equation, of course, because that's only any good if anybody needs the hydrogen. So the other part of that balance is that there are a lot of areas of our power usage and our energy usage that cannot be achieved just with electricity. So some of the quick wins that we've seen already, for example, with electric vehicles, absolutely fantastic. But as soon as you start trying to use that same technology in a larger vehicle like a HGV or a train, you need much more space for the batteries and it becomes much less economically viable. So some of these industries are now looking at hydrogen uh, and to move to hydrogen. And the Committee on Climate Change uh, is convinced that hydrogen is a, going to be a major part of our transition to net zero for those harder to electrify parts of our economy. Ronnie Quinn is also excited about the possibilities of hydrogen, both blue and green. Blue hydrogen generally refers to hydrogen created using traditional industrial processes, where the carbon dioxide also created is stored using carbon capture and storage. Green hydrogen is made using renewable energy and electrolyzers, which effectively split water into hydrogen and oxygen. We can use hydrogen anywhere, really, that we have uh, existing fossil fuels. So we can burn it to project, provide energy. Uh, we can burn it for generators. We can burn it for heating. We can mix it with the natural gas that we all use in our, in our homes. Uh, we can mix it up to 20% uh, without having to change any of the hardware that we use without having to change our central heating boilers or our gas cookers. So we have a lot of uses for blue hydrogen and that will be a transition into that hydrogen economy. Richard Coburn also stresses that hydrogen is a known quantity, not something completely new. Yeah, hydrogen is a really exciting option as part of the net zero mix. So hydrogen is readily available. We have the technology to produce it. And it's not something that, that we're unused to. So until the mid-60s, uh, the gas used in the UK was town gas, which, yes, it was produced by coal, but about 50% of the mix was hydrogen. So uh, we've been here before uh, and we know that it, that it can work. He also says recent research suggests green hydrogen could be a big factor sooner than anyone expected. Uh, everyone would like ideally to go to green hydrogen. Of course they would, it's the purest form, it's the lowest carbon form. But the fact of the matter is that green hydrogen is currently very expensive. Um, electrolyzers are, are super expensive just now. So in order to get hydrogen off the ground really quickly, we do need to use blue hydrogen. And remember that the emissions are being captured from that. And what that will do is it will help to create a market for when green hydrogen does come through and is more cost effective. IRENA, the uh, International Renewable Energy Agency, very recently said that whereas previously it thought that uh, green energy might be on a par cost-wise with blue hydrogen by 2040, 
It's now pulled that estimate forward to 2030. Uh, so one might expect that green hydrogen actually becomes more economical much more quickly than people have been expecting until now. When Richard Coburn talked about town gas, he opened up another huge net zero debate. How on earth do we decarbonise the way we heat our homes? And how do we afford it? It's another massive issue, as Richard explains. When it comes to heat, uh, domestic heat, or in fact heat as a whole, heating buildings represents about one-fifth of Scotland's greenhouse gas emissions. So it's very important, it needs to be tackled uh, very quickly. Uh, that's recognised by the Scottish Government. It, it introduced a heat in buildings strategy uh, in October 2021, just within a few days of the UK Government issuing a similar strategy. Um, and the Scottish Government is very keen to get emissions from houses and, and non-domestic buildings down by uh, 68% by uh, 2030, compared with 2020 levels. Now that's very, very ambitious, but it's very necessary. And it's tricky because uh, there's a very big cost implication, but there are also many uh, remote houses and buildings which are difficult to get to, difficult to convert. So the Scottish Government reckons that maybe about £33 billion is required to get heating to net zero by 2045. It obviously doesn't have that money. Um, there are other options out there, so the new Scottish National Investment Bank can be used to, to trigger funding for heat investment, and, and there's a plan to do that. Um, but what's been done in Scotland is that uh, a so-called Green Heat Finance Task Force has been set up, which is... Uh, a forum between the public and the private sector to look at what funding is required and where that funding could come from. And that's going to be very uh, important when it comes to working out how to fund the transition. One interesting point is that uh, mention has been made of a Danish heat as a service scheme, which effectively is a subscription scheme to a boiler. So instead of you buying a boiler outright, you wouldn't instead subscribe to it. Uh, you would pay an annual or a monthly fee. And that's something that, that's been looked at in Scotland. Heating our homes is one big issue that affects us all. Moving over to electric vehicles is another. And another really tricky area, where again, Scotland is off the net zero pace. It's pretty clear across the UK, including Scotland, that investment isn't quick enough at the moment. So uh, there was a Freedom of Information request uh, just at the end of 2021, which revealed that uh, uh, just over half of local authorities in the UK had made no investment uh, in 2021 in, in electrical vehicle charging infrastructure. So that in itself tells you that a lot needs to be done. Um, and indeed, the, the policy exchange organisation issued a report earlier in 2021 uh, saying that only one-fifth of the required investment is currently being made in, in electric vehicle charging. So uh, we need to speed things up. We are speeding things up, I think, across the country. The UK, there's a new £950 million rapid charging fund to, to put EV charging in on motorways and A-class roads. Uh, in Scotland, there's a Charge Place Scotland network scheme and the new Scottish network, Scottish National Investment Bank, has invested a couple of million pounds in an EV charging operator during 2021. So things are happening. Um, it needs to happen more quickly. And we also mustn't forget that the, the big... Uh, transmission, distribution, electrical infrastructure in the background will need to be upgraded as well to accommodate all the EV charging. So, great opportunities with hydrogen, with carbon capture and storage, with offshore wind, not to mention onshore wind and solar power, which is still expanding in Scotland. But is it enough to get to net zero? And 
is it enough to plug the huge jobs and investment gap being created as Scotland's oil and gas industry continues to contract? Can we make the transition to a low-carbon economy without large-scale unemployment? There's a mismatch just now. Uh, in the oil and gas industry in Scotland, uh, there are about 110,000 jobs. Uh, there used to be an awful lot more, but that's come down in recent years. Compare that with how many jobs there are in the Scottish renewables sector, and that is somewhere around about the 25,000 mark. So straight away, you can see the big difference between the two. The Scottish government does have a target of getting to 130,000 renewable energy jobs, although we're not anywhere near that target just at the moment. That said, there's a lot of work going on just now. So an outfit called Opito, uh, which used to be an oil and gas uh, training agency and is now a, an, an oil energy training agency, um, has entered into an alliance with the, the ACON carbon capture proposal up in the northeast of Scotland and also the Scottish cluster to, uh, to retrain workers for, for low carbon projects. We've also got the Energy Skills Alliance in Scotland, which is a, 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 an organisation, a, a, a collection of organisations looking at how to transition particularly oil and gas workers into renewables. And we've got the North Sea Transition Deal, which was a deal signed up uh, between government and industry to, to try and get the uh, North Sea oil and gas industry uh, properly transitioned. And there's an express aim in that to create uh, around 40,000 new uh, low carbon jobs. So we're getting there, but there's a long way to, to go yet when it comes to, to jobs. Joanne Alday also urges realism on job numbers, certainly in the short term. We're very keen to be realistic about the number of jobs that are likely to be created. This probably isn't another North Sea oil and gas in terms of the number of jobs. It is probably a, a much smaller number of jobs that are required if you just look at the offshore wind industry. So we are seeing, obviously, a number of jobs leave North Sea oil and gas as that continues to its managed decline. In our region, we also have Dune Ray being decommissioned. Um, so we have people with nuclear skills, you know, very, um, very clever scientists that are, that are leaving and, and looking for work in our region as well. Now, some of those people, particularly in floating wind, which does have a, a lot in common with, um, with floating substructures and, and oil and gas platforms, for example, and also in hydrogen, which obviously there's a lot of crossover between the nuclear science and, and the hydrogen science, the chemical areas. And um, we think there are naturally transferable skills um, and that would probably be easier to transition across into renewables. There will be, of course, lots of support roles. And, you know, all of these companies now that have won the winning bids are increasing their teams so that they can deliver these projects, but they won't be building out until maybe 2028, 2029. So we have to be really realistic and manage people's expectations around these jobs. What the Scotwind announcement enables us to do is see that future pipeline and prepare for it and make sure people have the right skills. And we've got the time to do that. But not everybody from oil and gas is going to transition across. Not everybody will want to, of course. You know, oil and gas is an international um, industry with phenomenal 
opportunities and a lot of people um, that like that industry will probably want to stay in it and may just move country and um, so we need to be mindful of that as well and and give people those opportunities and I think the people that train today in renewables if they then use that knowledge to decarbonize our country I think in the future they will also be able to export those skills as other countries decarbonize. Joanne says one of the musts for maximising future jobs is getting it right in offshore wind, especially floating wind, and avoiding the mistakes of the past. We just have one opportunity to get this right. We made mistakes with the fixed bottom wind industry and we didn't get it quite right. A lot of the components were made abroad. Um, And I think everybody in the industry and across government, across the supply chain, I think we all recognise that. Uh, And there is a willingness to do things differently if we can this time. And we have an opportunity and it, 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 but it, it is a finite length of time that that opportunity will exist. The fixed bottom wind supply chain is currently full. You know, there are lots of bottlenecks already because there are so many of these wind farms being built around the world. So the floating wind supply chain, it it needs its own supply chain. So if we can learn lessons from what we did last time, move quickly, make the investment in Scotland um, ahead of other countries, then we can establish that supply chain first. And we probably won't be able to build everything in Scotland. You know, I think we have to be realistic about where we can be competitive and we have to be globally competitive. Um, But if we can, and there are areas where I think we can be competitive, then there's no reason why we can't be manufacturing those components in Scotland and exporting them to other countries. Joanne is excited but realistic about the opportunity Scotland has to make this jobs transition happen on the road to net zero. It is a historic moment. Um, It is promise for the future. And if we're strategic and we work together I think we can make more of this opportunity than we've made of this sector in the past and I genuinely believe there is a willingness you know the conversations we have with developers with government people throughout the supply chain they all want to make the most of this and I think if we work together we can do exactly that. At the start of this podcast I asked if we could do it in Scotland could we hit net zero by 2045 so can we Will we? Ronnie Quinn. It's achievable, and that's the important thing. And and that's what we we should be aiming for, achievable targets that we can get to. It's not going to be easy, and to suggest that it is, I think, would be wrong. But uh, it it is achievable if we start now. And Richard Coburn agrees. It is definitely possible. It's definitely within our power to do it. We need to pull our socks up a bit in order to get there. Is it likely? I think it is likely. I think that there's a lot of good stuff going on. Offshore wind, hydrogen, carbon capture, onshore wind, solar, you name it. There are developments right across the field. So yes, I'm confident that we will get there. Thanks for listening to Sustainable Scotland, a podcast produced by The Scotsman. This episode was delivered in partnership with Womble Bond Dickinson. Listen out for more episodes of Sustainable Scotland on all your main podcast platforms. Sustainable Scotland is presented by me, David Lee, and produced by Andrew Mulligan.